We need a few more Richards in this conversation. Richard G, no less. Yeah. Just to make it less confusing. <laughs> yeah. All right, Chris, I think I'm ready to go. I got two backup recordings going, so. Okay. Well, hopefully um, the technology gods uh, are with us, and I'll let you uh, moderate. I'm going to keep my comments to a minimum because I know James only has an hour, and people want to hear Richard and uh, James. They hear plenty of me, so I'll save it for later on in the show. That's great. I just want to start by thanking everyone for coming. We've got a good, really good turnout here. Um, as you know, most people here are the autonomy class, and we're here with Richard Gage, architects, nine, architects and engineers for 9-11, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and Richard Grove, our host and navigator. Well, um, Richard Gage, uh, could you just start by filling us in on what's going on with the Holsey Report, maybe what it is and what you're hoping to do with it in September when you present it to the Attorney General to give a bit of a background on that, please. You bet. Um, this report is a major finite element analysis computer study by the University of Alaska. Professor Leroy Halsey, one of the top forensic structural engineers in the country, the Department of Civil Engineering, is the dean of, well, the chair, the chair of, and um, getting a lot of background noise. Um, I'll keep going then. It's too distracting, uh, Chris. Somebody's needs. Somebody is. Uh, I'm not hearing it on my end, so. Yeah, we've got some music going on. Let me check the list. Um, it's the person called Case is causing the problem. Case. Okay, Case, could you unmute, please? Sorry, Richard, go ahead. Thanks. Um, so th this uh, study, uh, it comes from a very credible source, and We've got three years and $300,000 uh, into it of the investment from those in the 9-11 truth movement. And Professor Halsey will be presenting uh, in, at UC Berkeley on September 5th, his conclusions. And of course, those conclusions have already been released. Uh, it is no surprise, fire did not bring down World Trade Center 7 the 47-story skyscraper that collapsed on 9-11 in seven seconds, straight down uniformly after witnesses hear explosions, this building drops like a rock at free fall acceleration. So what can cause that? Not fire, and that's the official cause uh, of this building's collapse, uh, as uh, stated by NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, who was tasked by Congress to explain this collapse to the American people which they ultimately did seven years after 9-11. So this is an extraordinary set of circumstances, which we've been trying to blow the whistle on for 12 years now at Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth and on our website, ae911truth.org. And so this study now is being, uh, is an in internal review uh, by a group of eight trusted uh, technical uh, experts in their fields, and it will be released on September 3rd, 4th, or 5th uh, this year, just in time, of course, for the September 11th anniversary, the 19th anniversary. So this is um, a big deal. Uh, we will be sending 25,000 engineers across the country 
a postcard telling them about this study, encouraging them to look at it and to provide their feedback. And we will also be giving it to the U.S. attorney who has already promised in writing to impanel a special grand jury to look at the explosive evidence of all three World Trade Center skyscrapers on 9-11. So we have a huge, huge uh, lineup of activities in September 11th, which also includes the five fire commissioners in the Franklin Square district in New York. Uh, and they have unanimously voted for a resolution demanding a new investigation of 9-11, uh, citing our evidence and this study as, uh, as, as key backup components for them. So uh, all this is gonna happen at the National Press Club in a press conference uh, that we will bring the fire district commissioners to, uh, along with Professor Halsey, ourselves, and uh, a few of the uh, key uh, uh, family members of the victims of 9-11. Um, what do we know about the U.S. attorney um, that is being presented to? Um, does a lot depend on their discretion? Um, what do we know about that coming up? Well, a, a lot of it depends on uh, the discretion of the U.S. attorney. Uh, theoretically, the grand jury process is independent of the judicial system. It's like a fourth branch of the U.S. government, according to U.S. Supreme Court Justice of late, Anton Scalia. Uh, so uh, they have incredible autonomy if they act on that autonomy. They're also subject to manipulations by U.S. district attorneys uh, and other district attorneys as well. So um, we have in writing a promise to impanel this special grand jury. There's been a conversation between the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, which did all the legwork for getting this to happen. Uh, them and the U.S. attorney, they have talked. And the U.S. attorney uh, wasn't able to tell them anything of substance, um, only that uh, uh, to indicate th that he's proceeding according to the law. That's all he could say. So uh, we really don't know specifically what that means. So September we expect, 5th. Sorry, we do expect to be called as expert witnesses and to bring in this uh, finite element analysis and have Leroy Halsey be called in also to show them that this, at least this third building could not have been brought down by uh, fire alone. And of course we have the evidence for the Twin Towers, uh, very explosive evidence with thermite, nanothermite, uh, forensic evidence, et cetera. Um, James Corbett, any thoughts or comments on that? I think these are all incredibly important developments and obviously we're all waiting to see how they'll proceed. Um, and I will refrain from being too cynical and prejudging things. Uh, I mean, we have, we are now at approaching the 20th anniversary in a couple of years here. So, uh, it's a long time to wait for justice. And one wonders at what point do we start losing the ability to actually achieve justice, but I'm glad there are people out there that are still attempting to achieve it while we still have that opportunity. Richard. <laughs> That's right. Um, there's plenty of reason to be cynical. Uh, there's uh, skeptical, we'll say, 
there's also more reason to be hopeful. Uh, and I'll cite among the metrics for that speculation on my part, the support for AE911 Truth. We received 120,000 hits on our website in the last, uh, well, the, the four days following the release of the fire district commissioner's uh, demand for a new, this, there's never been a legislative body. These, these, these commissioners are elected and by the people to represent them and in their fire district. And they have unanimously demanded a new investigation, citing the forensic evidence of an explosive evidence uh, at the World Trade Center, Twin Towers and Building 7. Uh, we have been overwhelmed with support for uh, our part in developing these commissioners and that resolution and providing them with evidence and so forth for a series, of, a number of months now. So uh, I think it'll all, I, I, I'm going to be hopeful and say on September 11th at this press conference, the National Press Club, that um, the media will be forced to pick it up because of, if not because of the 3,000 architects and engineers for 9-11 Truth that we represent who are also demanding a new investigation, but because of this um, unprecedented action on the part of fire uh, commissioners, uh, Christopher Joya, uh, the lead among them, who has uh, stated that the head of the uh, national of the New York Association of Fire Districts uh, has himself come out in favor of a new investigation. And I'm expected to speak uh, early in September in New York at that body. And that's, that's still being set up. Um, we have been told by these fire commissioners that their grassroots work is very positive. So maybe it's just the time, you know. We know that um, Google and Facebook and Twitter have had incredible censorship capability over all of our work uh, in this body assembled here. Um, and uh, I think despite that, somehow, by word of mouth, perhaps mainly, not necessarily as much on social media, but people are picking it up. And uh, we've, I believe, 20 to 30% of the people are aware that um, that something's rotten in the state of Denmark here. Richard, perhaps beside the point, but can you uh, slake my own personal curiosity about the Franklin Square and Munson Fire District, which I understand represents an area uh, in Queens. It's uh, a hamlet of 30,000 residents just outside of Queens. Is that right? And it's a volunteer fire, uh, fire department. Right. Um, what was their role in 9-11 or the cleanup? Uh, most of them were at the cleanup. Uh, one of them, uh, Thomas Hetzel, died uh, in one of the towers, I believe it was. Um, and uh, he, his wife and his mother uh, were at the presentation uh, that, where this boat was, was taken. And they are the inspiration behind the, the movement there. Um, I've talked with Chris uh, a few times now at length, and uh, this man is on fire. Uh, 
he's not going to stop until uh, every firefighter in New York and outside of New York State has been uh, uh, made aware of this evidence. Um, so does that help, James? Yes, it does. Just the other follow-up question would be, do you know if any of these uh, members of this fire department were uh, stricken by the respiratory uh, illnesses or any sort of health effects? Given that there are a lot more firefighters who have died since 9-11, I mean, after 9-11, uh, than on 9-11 uh, uh, by far, I can only imagine that that's the case, but that's speculation on my part. I'll find out for you, though. Yeah, please do. I, I'd like to know the sort of the personal story of some of the people involved in this. Um, clearly, uh, as I say, beside the point, but still, that is one of the major neglected aspects of 9-11, which we tend to think of as a single point in time, a single thing that happened on a single day and had consequences out from there. No, there are, as you point out, many, many people who have died and or are dying from the health effects of that day and the lies, the documented lies that we know were told by the EPA and uh, Christine Todd Whitman in the days and weeks following that event. So that's an extremely important part of the story that unfortunately doesn't seem to get a lot of coverage in the alternative media. So I, I like to try to bring attention to that when I can. Right on. That's a, that's a great point. And, and that may have come out in the, the big meeting that they had there. Uh, and uh, I didn't, I don't have, Actually, that portion of the meeting was actually short. It only lasted about seven minutes. It was simply a, a reading of the resolution and the vote. And then they went on to other business. So there was no public comment, uh, no discussion. Uh, uh, but certainly uh, Christopher Joya will know the answer to that question. Great story. Great idea for, for deepening the story. Richard, um, you mentioned a who's doing a lot of research on the topic as well. Um, what was the, could you tell us a little bit more about him? He was a student at, at Boston University, and he has, he's a 9-11 truth activist who has uh, specialized in digging in deeper to Ace Elevator. Ace Elevator had the contract for the modernization of these hundred elevator cabs in the two twin towers. They came out of nowhere to get this contract for the, mo for the um, modernization, uh, an unprecedented, uh, the largest modernization in history. Uh, they sh this probably should have gotten to Otis Elevator who built these elevators and who had been maintaining them up until this time. But this company uh, had this contract the nine months prior to 9-11. And what's so interesting about this is that this could have given a group of operatives uh, months in advance uh, inside the core, the shafts with the elevator cabs, uh, where the core columns are to place uh, critical shaped cutter charges, uh, which we know the results of in terms of actual thermite, uh, which is found by the USGS, for instance, the residue of thermite in all of these uh, billions and billions of previously molten iron microspheres uh, throughout all the World Trade Center dust. It's a key signature component. It's not even World Trade Center dust unless it has these unknown origin 
previously molten iron microspheres. Well, where did the iron come from? We haven't built skyscrapers out of iron for hundreds of years. Well, 100 years. And um, so th this is really key because this group, Ace Elevator, had 85 employees in the building at the time the planes hit, and they fled. They scattered uh, like rats. It was quite a scandal documented by USA Today. And so this elevator modernization needs to be looked into. It was documented in March of 2001 in Elevator World. And that's where got uh, his start. And he's found out who uh, was in charge of Ace Elevator uh, and uh, found out some very interesting facts about them, their ties to various organizations. And um, I'm not going to be saying any more about that, but we're looking forward to uh, referring to uh, an article which he intends to publish soon. And wasn't there something about the armed guards at the elevators while it was being worked on? Yes, uh, they shut down various elevator hoistways in turn, uh, and there were armed guards. And this is uh, documented by witness uh, uh, Bill. Oh, gosh. I forgot his name. Um, so uh, anyway, that is uh, that is that that is uh, documented there by by this witness. I'll th I'll think of his name. Um, just one more thought on that. So any of this evidence about the elevator debacle that, but none of that will apply in September. Um, there's no there's not been any detriment um, damning evidence with that yet that could be taken to taken to the attorney general. Any of that. Well, I think the, the attorney general doesn't have to have damning evidence to present the, the, to the U.S., excuse me, the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry who filed this petition to the U.S. attorney doesn't need damning evidence to give them uh, ideas about who these 23 grand jurors uh, should be asking questions uh, of and to and about. Uh, so they, they have included the Ace Elevator uh, story um, uh, to them, and some of those facts have already been given to the U.S. attorney. Okay. Any thoughts, James, Richard? I'll leave it to James. Go ahead. Uh, no, I'm very excited and interested to hear uh, more about that, the Ace Elevator investigation. I'm hoping that such an article would be published in the Journal of 9-11 Studies or something similar to uh, to hopefully draw attention to that issue, because I, I think we do need some some proper scholarly research on it. And now I'll pick it back up. So I remember working in the World Trade Center, maintenance going on the spring of 2001, specifically because not because like because there's a bunch of elevator banks you can go up to right go up to uh there's two sky lobbies in the building so you have to go up and then you get in another elevator you go up and then you can get another elevator to get to the top of the building unless you go up to the restaurant one of the days it's spring of 2001 i go to the world trade center i get in the elevator you can fit eight 16 people in there if it's crowded they're pretty big elevators and they got uh doors on both sides. So you go in one side, you're in the uh, car, and then you go out the other side because you go, you enter from the outside of the building. And when you get off the elevator, you're in the central core of the building. One day, the elevators were going really, really slow. And people in the car were talking about they were working on the elevators, and they had adjusted them and they were going too fast and somebody got hurt. I want to say that they got killed was the room like the rumor. But I don't know that there's any evidence of that but 
the story was in the elevator, people talking that somebody had gotten hurt. I don't know to what degree, but that was going on in the spring of 2001. So that's something I can corroborate. Great. Well, I've heard um, similar stories. Um, the what's what's even, of course, more damning to the official story. And we should just mention it for those in your audience who are not familiar with this evidence. There's a team of eight scientists led by Niels Herrett in Copenhagen who found in all the World Trade Center samples uh, that he studied, and he was given seven of them, these curious red-gray chips, uh, about a sixteenth of an inch long, red on one side, gray on the other. Uh, the red side is composed of extremely small particles of iron oxide and aluminum powder. Uh, these are the ingredients of thermite. What are the ingredients of thermite doing in all of these chips that look like uh, primer paint, but uh, th th they're not primer paint because these are nanoparticles of iron oxide, aluminum powder. In a heater, they, they, ex they ignite and produce uh, hundreds of just on each chip, uh, these small, previously molten iron microspheres. So they produce the exact same microspheres that are documented by USGS and RJ Lee, an independent environmental consulting firm. And uh, so what are they doing in all the World Trade Center dust, these chips of nanothermite? Uh, this is documented in a peer-reviewed paper in the Bentham Open Chemical Physics Journal. It is uh, hard evidence uh, that, um, that these towers were brought down uh, by this special form of thermite and thermite, ordinary thermite as well. Uh, so uh, that needs to be spoken, uh, as well as the experience of hundreds of first responders and others citing explosions, hearing explosions, seeing explosions, being blown around in the in the building by explosions, uh, and and many of these before the tower even came down because they're very precise in their order. Uh, they're like a train running underneath my feet. One of them says, uh, it "Is incredible these explosions." And then you look up and you see the tower uh, uh, exploding and and coming down. Uh, so the basement explosions before the planes even hit as documented by a dozen witnesses, including William Rodriguez. So all of these explosions and the visuals of explosions in all the videos, uh, 20 stories down below the collapse, even up to 60 stories down below the collapse, all of these uh, uh, isolated explosive ejections called squibs in the controlled demolition industry. Uh, this is all damning evidence. And it's really only the tip of the iceberg. I mean, I spent two hours presenting this evidence to everybody, and I don't, I don't, I'm not repetitive. It goes on and on and on, and there's nobody that's not convinced by this evidence uh, when we present it uh, live in a group of of newcomers uh, to the evidence, uh, particularly the architects and now the engineers through project due diligence. Uh, we present this uh, to groups of chapters of the American Society of Civil Engineers, and they they sign right up. They're on board. Uh, they they see how faulty the NIST report was, for instance, 
because the, our engineers go through that, Roland Angle in particular, and now Leroy Halsey with the uh, uh, WTC7 uh, finite element analysis, they're, they're turning the, the profession uh, around. Uh, they're receiving almost universal calls for a new investigation after these presentations. So uh, we're very excited to, to uh, have a renewal, if you will, uh, of, of, of the successes in waking people up, particularly engineers, and hopefully soon, although I remain skeptical on this front, our legislative representatives seem to have been bought off. Uh, they just are not interested, although uh, we will go back again on September 11th in the afternoon with uh, Chris Joya and the other fire district commissioners where we will have presentations, meetings with our elected, with many elected representatives and give our literature to all 535 uh, uh, members of Congress at the same time that afternoon. Uh, so we're, we're looking for breakthroughs, but um, we're getting support of the 9-11 truth movement. We have almost 2000 sustaining supporters at AE 9-11 truth. So we're able to keep on going with this small staff of less than half a dozen of us uh, banging away all the time, wherever we can. And now with these big heavy hammers, Sorry, Richard Grove, can I just follow up a little bit? Because it's never actually occurred to me with your own personal experience in the towers. Can you corroborate either the armed security around various elevator upgrades or other work going on in the towers and or the power down slash security stand down that supposedly took place the weekend before 9-11? All right. So the the power down, uh, I was not working in the buildings before I, I left in June. So the power down the weekend before, I'd only seen the uh, the whistleblower reports. There was like there was a guy involved who had reported that the the power down. Um, and what was the first part of your question? Uh, the uh, the what had been raised oh, earlier. Armed guards. Armed guards around the elevator upgrades. If there were armed guards, they weren't armed guards like we think of them. They were like street police, like they were like security guards, and they probably had weapons, but they weren't. I don't remember them ever being visible. I never saw anything that wasn't corporate in that lobby going into elevators. So if there was guys in like SWAT gear guarding an elevator, I'd have taken notice of that. So I don't remember ever seeing that. But again, um, I didn't work there every day. I went there like maybe three days a week. And so, you know, and when I was going there, it wasn't really timeline that was up till June, 2001, right? That was up till June 5th was the last time I was there until September 11th. And well, actually September, September 9th, I had windows on a world dinner. So between June, June 5th and September 7th or 9th, I think it was the 7th was a Friday. Right. Cause the 9th would have been the Sunday. Yeah. 7th was when the Friday. power down supposedly was taking place. So. Yeah. Friday is when I was there Friday night windows on the world dinner, <laughs> trying to get a job. I Do got an know? offer too. That was a good, it was a good dinner. It was, everything was good up until September 11th. Then things go sideways. Yeah. Um, do we know when report will be out? Um, is he projected anything? Cause I mean, we'd all be looking forward to that. Yeah. I don't have a date on that. He's been, uh, uh, lax on getting made the progress uh, made that I believe is needed to, 
have more confidence. In other words, it's been a couple of years now he's been working on it. Can we help him with it? Because he's in Boston. Like I could easily go interview him. And James and I know more yep. about the the who and why, whereas you've been very doggedly diligent focusing on the how. Yeah, I, I would love to sick you on him. <laughs> For sure. No, he's, I talked to him last week. He said um, he, he'll get back on it, you know, and so he's been saying that for a while, but this could really help uh, Richard and, and James. If you, if you guys offer to uh, not only, you know, help him in some fashion, but offer to uh, uh, publish or expose the results, uh, I think that'd be very helpful. I'd like to help make sure the results are as accurate as possible. Mm -hmm. You know, if, uh, if he's got, if he's got some information, I just want to make sure that like, uh, it's, you know, we connect the dots, make sure it's solid that he's not publishing something that would be deleterious to your endeavor of building a solid case and focusing only on that solid case and not going after who did it or why they did it. Right on. Um, what's RJ Lee, the consulting agency, what's their role now? Didn't they do, they did four different studies on the, the thermite, didn't they? Um, what uh, what role are they playing at the moment? They didn't study the thermite. They studied the dust for toxicological um, issues. How much um, dust are we talking about, Richard? How much dust was at the World Trade Center site? Just so people understand, the students have an idea. Well, there was 90,000 tons of concrete, which was turned to dust. There's uh, probably an equivalent amount of gypsum board that was turned to dust. And there were uh, 1,600 people that we don't have a trace of. They were turned to dust. Uh, and uh, lots and lots of other components in there, of course. So uh, there, somebody's added this up. It, it's, it's, um, it's in excess of, uh, of 100,000 tons, uh, for sure, of dust, which spread across lower Manhattan from river yeah. to river in three and to square put it miles. In human, to put it in human terms, I was just reading an article from, I think, 2002 um, about the dust and the issues that it was causing even at that time. And they were remarking on the Deutsche Bank building, which is just downwind um, from that site, where they were talking about the hallways being covered in dust in some places up to three feet of dust in, in the building. So um, incredible amounts. Yes, and, and one of the studies they did inside that Deutsche Bank building showed that up to 30%, or excuse me, up to 6% of that dust was previously molten iron microspheres. These are the diameter of a human hair, hard, hard to see on average, hard to see by the naked eye, most of them. Uh, so, and yet they, they, they're very clear, RJ Lee is absolutely clear, said these were formed during the event, not before, by iron workers uh, welding at the site during the erection, uh, not afterward by the, the, the uh, iron workers who were cutting apart the building, but during the event. Well, what could form molten iron during the event? Molten iron, iron doesn't melt, steel doesn't melt uh, until about 2,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about uh, four times as hot as these fires could have been though NIST claims without evidence that they were 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. So this is um, uh, complete speculation 
on their part, uh, trying to begin to justify some of the molten materials is what they're really trying to do here. But they're still short a thousand degrees in order to melt iron. And we're not just talking about spheres that were melted. Uh, uh, we're talking about pools of molten iron documented by all kinds of structural engineers and, and iron workers and uh, in, in, in firefighters, including the World Trade Center structural engineer himself, Leslie Robertson, who says uh, he saw a river of steel flowing. Uh, that's incredible. Well, guess what? Rivers of steel don't flow until you have 2,800 degrees. Kerosene, which is uh, jet fuel, doesn't even begin to uh, approach 600 degrees, actually is the maximum burning temperature in open air, according to its manufacturer. So we're still short. 25% uh, is all uh, of the heat required to melt all of this steel, which is also seen pouring out. Uh, it's really iron uh, in this case, pouring out of the South Tower minutes prior to its collapse. Uh, all of this molten iron pouring. Uh, so this is not lead and it's not aluminum. As NIST claims, uh, aluminum doesn't glow bright yellow, bright white hot in daylight conditions. Neither does lead. So it can only be molten steel or iron. And there's no, there's no reason to think that it would be molten steel, um, uh, given all the evidence for thermite, uh, which releases molten iron as its byproduct at 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Hot. <laughs> um, thoughts, comments, Richard, James? Well, my first question is the, the study that Halsey, Dr. Leroy Halsey has done at the University of Alaska, did that go on concurrent or after we did the interview with the NIST whistleblower, Peter Ketchum? Because it seems like they go together very neatly. Two people that didn't know each other. Ketchum was a, a guy who worked at the NIST um, and he reviewed the report. And he was skeptical about it. And so he drew a number of conclusions. And so during the interview, I asked him, the NIST report on World Trade Center 7, did any of the data used for the report come from the site? Did they take it from the actual event, from the, from the site where the building came down? And the answer is no. So from the start, their report was not built on reality. It referenced reality 0% of the time and was entirely structured around making that, that story that came out four days after the event to be true. And then with the, with the Halsey presentation, he goes through, he and his students recreated World Trade Center 7 in the software by, you know, from the blueprints. And what they found was the difference between their model and the NIST model was there were certain reinforcement place, plates that were actually in the building that are missing from the model. And if you put those in the model, the model doesn't react as, as they claim. Yeah, this is just the beginning of the fraudulence of NIST relative to the Building 7 report that they made. Um, they have an elaborate speculation that the uh, fires, which they claim were very hot in that area on the 12th floor in the northeast section of Building 7, that these hot fires at the time of the collapse, which the photos and videos completely disprove, those fires were out an hour 
before that collapse. So they couldn't have been expanding these long span beams, which is this whole theory, uh, which then pushes this girder off of its seat on this column 79, and then causes floor 13 to fall onto 12, 12, and 11, and so on for nine floors, leaving this column 79 unbraced for nine floors, at which point it buckles, causing the inside ca cascading collapse of the northeast section of this building. And then this collapse travels laterally across this football-sized building. And all this happens in about 10 seconds. I mean, it's extraordinary. We're talking about a theory that requires the almost simultaneous failure of 400 structural steel connections every second. And the, and the theory is, is, is completely fraudulent and provably so at every point along its path. For instance, the fires were out, as we mentioned. Those beams were fireproof. Three, a three hour, four, a two hour fire protection on the steel beams in skyscrapers. That is uh, a lot more fire protection than the 20 minutes of fire that there's fuel to fuel uh, for. Even NIST acknowledges that fires in skyscrapers only last 20 to 30 minutes in any given area. And, and so here's this, that, that, that fire is gone well before it could have heated up these beams and expanded them. So they ignore the fireproofing. They ignore the fact that the fires weren't there. And then they put all this heat, nevertheless, in their computer model into the beam in one and a half seconds. So that forces the beam to expand rather than sag, which is what it would have done if it was sustained in that length of a fire. So then in order, as Richard pointed out, in order to get that girder to move laterally based on these expanding beams, they have to ignore the fact that there were 30 shear studs along its length, tying it to the concrete slab up above. So, uh, so they just allow it to slide, which it couldn't have done. And the other point here is that if it, even if it did slide, uh, NIST says, well, the flange folded, uh, the, the part of the beam that sits on the, on the seat on the column it folded up. In other words, it didn't have to be pushed all the way off that seat. It only had to be pushed halfway off that seat and it began to fold. But there were, uh, there were stiffeners, uh, steel stiffeners keeping that from ever happening. But NIST omitted those from their uh, report so that uh, they could have this folding flange, which then uh, caused the girder to fall off of its seat. Well, even if the girder did fall off of its seat, we couldn't have had a complete collapse of building th of floor 13 on to 12 because there's two other massive girders tied into that column uh, on the other sides of it. So uh, that never could have happened. We wouldn't even have had the 13th floor uh, hitting the, the 12th floor, much less with a dynamic load enough to break those additional three girders and the, uh, with a sheer force uh, on them from above. Uh, it's it's all completely ludicrous. But even if that all could have happened, you wouldn't have had the internal cascading failure of these uh, of this northeast section because at at that point you would have had <clears throat> the exterior per perimeter structural steel 
uh, frame being pulled inward. Uh, you would have telegraphed onto the outside what was happening. There would have been massive breaking up of granite panels and windows as a result and crumpling like a beer can. We don't see any of that in the videos. Uh, this, this is a, a fraud from beginning to end. There's a, there's a bit of action from the autonomy class. Um, there's a question for you guys. Um, Pam Batchelder says, why were the aerial photos taken by helicopter pilot Detective Greg Simendinger held for so long and released so late nine years later? And also, why are the powers that still that be, still be, why are they withholding some of the pictures? Do you guys know any, any thoughts on that? I don't have a comment uh, on that. I, I'm not familiar with the uh, helicopter photos particularly. How about you, Jay? I, I don't know the details of the helicopter photo in particular, but I, I do, I was actually just thinking as Richard was speaking about some of the footage that has been released in recent years, uh, FOIAed, I believe, that was released in various forms and uh, has been compiled online. And uh, there is a YouTube channel that collects and compiles all the different versions of these videos that have been released. I can't unfortunately cite off the top of my head, but it is out there now. And one of the videos that came out in uh, well, I, I would say in the past decade anyway, uh, was some of the raw camera footage that was taken by, uh, I believe, a Fox affiliate or, or something of that sort, um, who was in the area. It, this was clearly after the collapses, but before <laughs> collapses, after the destruction of the Twin Towers, but before the destruction of WTC7. And he goes around and goes up through the lobby, um, up, up the uh, escalator, and you get a, a, a very good look at what WTC7 looked like in that afternoon. I'm not sure exactly what time it was, but it was the afternoon before the, uh, the building was destroyed. Uh, clearly, there was some massive damage there. And I think the official story would be that that damage, of course, was caused by the collapse of the buildings, and that was contributory to the failure that we saw later. Richard, what do you have to say to, uh, to that or about that? Are you familiar with the footage that I'm referring to? I know I'm being rather vague because I don't have it in front of me, but I have definitely seen this in the last few years. I yes. don't think so. It sounded similar. Oh, I'm sorry. There's two Richards. It sounded similar to some of the shots that Nades had going up the escalators after the uh, one of the trade setters had come down. Um, my thoughts were the other things to know about the uh, World Trade Center 7 is the BBC reported it before it happened. Flight 93 possibly was going to hit it until it was shot down, allegedly, by Lieutenant Colonel Rick Gibney of the North Dakota, North Dakota uh, Civil Air Patrol. What do they call it there? When, they, when you volunteer. Air National Guard. <laughs> Air National Guard. So there was reports. It was reported that Rick Gibney, who was uh, on NEAD's duty that day for North, Northeast Aerospace uh, Defense, had shot a signed winder missile into flight 93 knowing it was a hijack and it was headed toward a target and then we got a different story of what happened on the plane and etc cetera, etc cetera. i watched that flight 93 movie last night brushing up for this interview what's the propaganda about this but um the third building if it was meant to come down in some sort of constructed fashion had no triggering event other than bbc reporting it uh otherwise i think they might have just waited till dark to bring the building down and nobody would have video of it to talk about today so there's that. There's a group of uh, construction workers, very curious construction workers, walking away from Building 7, hearing an explosion over their shoulder in the afternoon of 
uh, looking back at the building over their shoulder and then looking straight into the CNN camera and saying, did you hear that? That building's coming down, flame and debris coming down. The building is going to explode. Uh, how do they know that? There's a few small scattered fires, which the fires department was told at about noon to stop. They weren't even fighting, but they were pulled out of the building because they were assessing it. And, and they were told not to fight the fires in the building. They were worried about structural damage was what they said. And so uh, this is really curious, uh, especially combined with the 1107 report from CNN saying that uh, a fireman came by and a, they said a 50 story building went down. Well, no other building went down besides these three skyscrapers. This was 11 o'clock that morning. Building seven doesn't come down until 5.20. And as James mentioned, I think it was James, uh, the BBC announced the collapse of this building 20 minutes before it ever happened. So a lot, leading a lot of researchers to speculate that that building was supposed to come down at that time in the morning, which would have been then completely obscured by the massive dust clouds released when the Twin Towers went down. So we can add that to our mix of our understanding of about what was the intent for Building 7 uh, and, and, and the timing. Uh, also, we have Barry Jennings and Michael Hess, uh, who worked on the 23rd floor, Barry Jennings, uh, the emergency command center. He was called up there, uh, or he thought he was supposed to go there, so he went. Michael Hess is the attorney for Mayor Giuliani. Uh, after the building had been evacuated, which was after the towers hit the twin were hit by the planes, but before they came down, and this was adamantly witnessed by Barry Jennings uh, prior to his untimely and mysterious death, uh, he claimed uh, that uh, that uh, before his rescue, uh, they were blown back up into the eighth floor by bombs uh, below. Uh, they also cite that the lobby had been destroyed by bombs. They also cite, Barry Jennings does, that he was walking over dead bodies in the lobby of Building 7 on his way out after having been rescued. So we can add this to the mix of, of uh, yeah. fascinating... Uh, That's the answer testing. that I was kind of looking for. I mean, clearly the damage that we're seeing in the afternoon could be the results of those explosions that Barry Jennings and, and Michael Hess were testifying to. Uh, and, well, then another point, let me, let me play devil's advocate while I'm doing it. Uh, Richard Gage, uh, something that a lot of the so-called erstwhile debunkers would bring up in their assessment of WTC7 is that while it is, of course, demonstrably visibly correct to say that the exterior of the building did come down in seven seconds and as NIST was forced to admit eventually a good portion of that was at freefall acceleration. Uh, however, it is also demonstrable and visible that portions of the building were collapsing in some manner before that seven second uh, of the exterior coming down. We see that from the Pentagon, uh, sorry, the, uh, the penthouse uh, collapse, seeming to yes. initiate something within the building before the, the building exterior comes down, which adds to that seven seconds. What can you say about that and how that plays into your assessment? Yes, and I always show this particular piece of damage uh, from this east penthouse six seconds prior 
to the overall building coming down, this East penthouse collapses. So what we're told by NIST is that that's a result of a structural failure down at the 12th floor, which we discussed earlier. But that would be impossible because unlike their model, their computer model, which shows failures all the way up from the 12th floor to the East penthouse six seconds earlier, the video shows nothing like that. There's no damage from the 12th floor up to the East penthouse. It's very clearly an isolated failure. For what reason, we don't know. Maybe they're mistimed explosions uh, that weren't supposed to go off until later, uh, or maybe they're part of a deception. We don't know, but we don't see any daylight in the 47th or 46th story uh, in, in some window, through windows that did break, indicating that the roof itself was maintaining its um, some degree enough structural stability, integrity to, to keep daylight uh, from getting through and shining out through those windows. Right. Tim Flynn is uh, asking, did we answer what happens if the demolition is proven? Um, is it like the Martin Luther King Jr. civil case where they're awarded a, a dollar and it never hits the media? What do you think of that? I'll let others tackle. That. Well, yeah. So this is this is the cynicism that I brought up earlier. It is, of course, I mean, after 18 years of failing to secure justice, it is easy to throw up your hands and just presume that the whole system is rigged and nothing will ever come of it. Obviously, if we do that, then nothing will ever come of it. So we have to continue trying. Um, it is certainly a possibility that amazing things, amazing revelations have come out. For example, in the Martin Luther King case, that get swept away and not part of the official narrative or the, the final word uh, by the House Select Committee on Assassinations on the JFK assassination was, this is the final word of the, the US government so far is it was the result of a conspiracy. So the Kennedy assassination that is. So I mean, some amazing things have happened over time that uh, you wouldn't think would be able to be covered up that are covered up. So it is a possibility, but hopefully what has been what we have represented in the past two decades is a movement unlike anything that has existed in the past in an age of not just mass media, but truly global instantaneous communication that at least has the power, the potential to be peer to peer and, and un, unblockable in, in many different ways. We have manifested that, I think, in spreading 9-11 truth. That is one of the reasons why well, it's certainly the reason why we are convened here electronically today. It's one of the reasons why 9-11 Truth is a subject that has been pursued to this level. It might not have been possible to do this decades ago, or certainly not to the extent that we're doing it today. And so if and when remarkable events happen, if, the, if it fails to get out into the public consciousness, that to some extent is our fault, less so than waiting for Time Magazine or the New York Times or WNBC or whatever to, to televise or publicize those proceedings. We have to do it ourselves. And I think that's why things like the, uh, the, the recent uh, fire commission meeting and, and, and things like that are examples of ways that we can get this information out regardless of what the mainstream media is doing with it. And I think a big part of our job is just providing comparison and contrast. So uh, we talked about the dust before, and it's an unimaginably huge number. If you just look at it like this, the World Trade Centers, let's say they're each 110 stories. 
each floor is an acre of concrete. That's 220 acres of concrete that turns into dust in like 20 seconds. So first off, there's no way to replicate that on earth as we know it with unclassified technology. There's no way to do it. I can't like take a yard of concrete and make it turn to dust without, you know, with, with jet fuel, <laughs> even with force coming down. Right. And then the other aspect is everyone's been indoctrinated so heavily through the school system that when they perpetrate something like JFK or 9-11, Alan Dulles spoke it true. The American public doesn't read. But those who do, those who are analytical, those who look for the contradictions out of the official story and say, wait a minute, I can't just ignore those. They're glaring. They're glaring contradictions. And it's just the, the going back to the comparison and contrast and its power to unlearn the fear it's, it's like, if you show somebody on day one, here's how they constructed these buildings. Here's the building of the World Trade Center. They still have that on YouTube. It's not censored yet. And then next day, here's the official story. And then the next day, yeah, here's why that can't be true, right? You spread it out over time, almost like an email drip sequence that people could get when they sign up at your site, Richard. So it would start to give them the power to articulate what they're learning to other people. Because as James said, that's what we're here to do. We're here to stimulate that conversation to trigger a little complexity in a nonviolent, non-aggressive way. But we're just saying there's a lot of things being done under the guise of 9-11, the Patriot Act, these wars on terror that are still going. We're still in Afghanistan because of 9-11. That's never going to end until more people can call bullshit. And they can't do that without the comparison and contrast. And that's kind of what we all provide in our own way to the audience. Absolutely. And piggybacking on your, your example there of this concrete, um, 90,000 tons of concrete in each of these towers, uh, it was spread out well outside the footprint of these buildings. And 100,000 tons of steel was spread out well outside the footprint of these buildings, up to 600 feet in every direction. So. We only have a two-story pile of twisted steel at the bottom of either of these towers. So if 90,000 tons of concrete didn't contribute to the force applied to cause the collapse, because it's outside the footprint, and 100,000 tons of steel didn't, then you tell me what caused the collapse of these buildings. That's most of the weight of the buildings right there. I'm uh, I'm being mindful of the time. I know um, James, uh, if you've got to go, um... I do have another interview lined up right after this, so I do have to go. But before I go, I'd like to. Can I ask Richard Grove a question? Um, uh, I'm going off of memory here. I haven't listened to it recently, but I believe in your project Constellation, uh, you said something to the effect of what you saw that morning of 9/11 contradicted the official account of what happened. And I believe you added some sort of tag, like what I did not see that morning also contradicted the official account of what happened on 9-11. Can you, can you elaborate on that? What did you not see that morning? Well, according to the official story, in hindsight, seeing the official story, I would have thought that I could have heard whatever airplane flew into the tower to cause that explosion. According to the official story, I was in a car. I was at, zero speed i was in traffic um and uh you know if i was going fast it was at most 40 miles an hour i had the top down it's a beautiful sunny day 
So if an airplane went screaming over my head and crashed into a building 20 blocks in front of me, I think I thought my first thought was I should have heard some sort of like I should have heard something in the Nade video. I think there's even sound to it. You can hear it coming and the cameraman turns the wrong way. He doesn't turn toward the sound. He turns the other way perfectly to frame where the sound is going to be. So uh, what I didn't see that morning were any planes because from where I was when World Trade Center 2 exploded, according to the official story, that plane came in from the south and my my view was blocked. So that's why I didn't see that one. But I was still quizzical about how the building exploded like that from a from the official story. The first reports on the radio were uh, a helicopter, like a small helicopter and a Cessna, like a small plane. And both of those I thought were realistic explanations. So I didn't know anything about the planes until I saw the official story later on TV. So from so my you experience, put yourself in the no plane camp or agnostic or what's your take on that? I would have to go agnostic on that, meaning I don't have I don't have evidence on either side, because if you look into the official story and you play it by the law of identification, let's clear our desk and we can only put things on the on the evidence board that can be identified. A plane has like six different ways to identify its parts, its transponder, all these different things you can identify a plane. So how was flight 11 identified that day? What parts or wreckage were found to identify it as flight 11? All those, the, there's no answers to any of those questions. So you can't assume, you can't start your, your, rash, your analysis or rationalization of this, the event uh, on assumptions. But that's exactly what they did with World Trade Center 7. They're like, let's just start with a bunch of assumptions and make it the official story. So, But to be um, clear, there is a difference between saying nothing was flying, nothing hit the building, and we don't know what hit the building. I mean, was it Flight 11 or was it another airplane? I mean, that's a quite a... All right, so let's go there. So did something hit the building? I didn't witness anything. So from my personal experience, I saw a building on fire cause of fire could have come from inside, not outside. I don't know what happened until the official story. And then they're saying that's what happened. And they, the Nade brothers who film for the NSA and CIA officially now, they have the only footage of whatever happened at World Trade Center 1, North Tower. Wow. We're working on a, an FAQ on this issue because there's a lot of people out there asking questions about did planes hit the towers or not um and which planes uh uh they're two separate issues as james pointed out uh, there's 43 videos independent videos that show planes hitting the towers um and the south tower in particular uh we're talking about now and there's dozens of witnesses uh, on tape uh some of them live uh, seeing the second plane hit the tower uh, while they're being interviewed uh, about 9-11. Uh, so we're assembling all of that and putting it on our website. We've also done a forensic analysis, a quick one, uh, that shows that the damage in the building is in fact consistent with a, a large plane size object hitting the building. So the next step of that, since large plane size objects hit the building, how can we be certain what plane size objects hit the buildings? Being that people involved had access to planes that looked just like that 
but their right. remote control and all these other Dobbs Act. And, and also taking in the historical context of Operation Northwoods, where we yep. know they were going to switch out planes as part of uh, deception operation. And Operation Aphrodite, which is where Joe Kennedy uh, Jr. was uh, slated, or he was on a bomber that was a remote control bomber that was going to crash into a target. So they were going to use a plane as a destructive weapon, and he was supposed to parachute out. But for some reason, the plane blew up before he went out, and that's how JFK became president. Right, oh. and we could also tie that into the research that's been done on the planes all having been hijacked in uh, radar blind spots, as it were. So that Well, yeah, and then the Stewart Air Force Base were 175 and Flight 11, I think, cross paths and their transponders and radar signatures disappear, and then they go back on after they cross over the Air Force. Uh, Stewart Air Force Base is notorious for drug running. Right. And and, okay, uh, just... Sorry, I, I do have to go. But just for the record, I just uh, want to put my own viewpoint out there. I, I certainly think there is uh, a large room for skepticism about what exactly hit the buildings. But I, as Richard says, there is there an overwhelming amount of evidence that something flew into the buildings. So I'm very much looking forward to that. When and how will that FAQ be published? Uh, we'll be publishing it uh, on our website, and that will be within two or three months. Looking forward to it. All right, uh, guys, I got to go. I got another interview, but it's been a Keep slice. your schedule. Be productive, James. We'll All right, right. So we'll continue talking with Richard for a few minutes. Have a great day. Right. Take Thank care. you very much, James. Bye-bye. Take care. Coming full circle, uh, Richard, if you got a few more minutes, um, here's another question from the Autonomy Group, which I think ties in to uh, – this um igor creso uh, he he's asking um why is this information relevant now 18 years later and what legal lawful implications could we hope for or expect as a result of this evidence being brought forward kind of a general question but it kind of leads to the conclusion of where we want to go yes well um everything changed after 9-11 uh we 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 launched uh two major wars which we're still in longest wars in human history uh more than seven or eight thousand u.s soldiers have been killed two million afghanis and iraqis have been killed uh we have legislation and executive orders like the uh national defense authorization act of 2012 and the patriot act uh, which allow our government to uh, arrest us uh, without a right to a lawyer, a trial, a jury, without uh, due process, they can torture us and even assassinate us. Uh, this is all like legal now if you're associated with terrorism, which isn't even defined. So this is really not good. It is uh, a long line of e examples in the uh, chain of false flag operations that governments have uh, performed against uh, their own people in an effort to manipulate them and blame it on another country as an excuse to go to war. And uh, we're just going to allow this state of affairs to stand. We're going to continue to get what we're getting, such as false flag chemical attacks in Syria, false flag shootings in across America uh, in an effort to manipulate us to give up our other rights in those cases, the Second Amendment rights. Is this the kind of country you want your son or daughter or theirs to grow up in? Or are we willing to take a stand 
and say thus far and no farther. The buck stops here. That's what I did 12 years ago when I was lied to on a colossal scale. Here I am a flag waving Reagan Republican rooting for Colin Powell at the United Nations as he was making his case for weapons of mass destruction against Iraq. And I'm saying, let's go get those bastards uh, you know, in Afghanistan who did this to us. Um, and boy, was I fooled. Well, we all know that we were all fooled in Iraq. Uh, some of us are waking up to being fooled uh, in Afghanistan and Osama bin Laden and 19 fundamentalist hijackers, eight of which are still alive, having been interviewed uh, since 9-11. Uh, they left all kinds of clues behind. All we have to do is pick them up and expose them to the American people and let God do his work. Um, we're, we have to do ours. He does his. The, the timing is not guaranteed. But if we put one foot in front of the other and uh, our hearts first before our anger and our fear, uh, then we will prevail. Um. What are your thoughts on John Stewart's recent uh, event where he went before the government and said and managed to get more compensation? I, I don't fully understand the details, but from what I understand, he actually seemed to have done a good thing. Uh, what do you think? Well, he, he's waking people up to the needs to support our heroes, the firefighters uh, who, who put out for us uh, on that day and who are suffering as a result of the lies told to us by the EPA and uh, our president and others. Uh, uh, so John Stewart is in this respect, a hero. If he wants to really be a hero, he'll step forward and blow the whistle on the whole 9-11 scam. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I, I busted out laughing there. Only because John Stewart came to Hartford one time, I snuck into the theater. I mean, I didn't sneak in. I got permission from the guy guarding the door, and I gave him a package that had a bunch of 9-11 truthy type stuff in there. That was probably around 2008, so there could have been AE 9-11 MIT that I uh, filmed for you out there where everyone at the beginning believes the official story, and at the end, nobody believed the official story. Yeah. Uh, my naive hope was, hey, John Stewart's going to watch this package. He's going to talk about it on a daily show. People will know about 9-11 and the firefighters. And yeah, so if that, if he does it today, that'd be cool. 20 years late. <laughs> yeah. Do you think if he was truly independent, he might do something like that? But I mean, he's, he's, he's controlled, isn't he? No, his brother runs like, you know, like stock exchange. His brother is a big Wall Street guy, so he's tied into the establishment, and he benefits from the establishment that did it. Unfortunately, that's what—that's why they keep it a secret, because they're the people who are participating at lower levels are all benefiting from it, and they don't know, like they don't—they don't want to go and try to make their own way in the world and start their own business. They're like they're on the gravy train, they're on the inside of the secret. They're not telling you, like they know about chemtrails. They're working on the projects. They just say you're Looney Tunes for you know, because. Um, Smithsonian had been publishing this documents uh, for it's like past 60 years that they're doing this. So if we can't know that there's a document and articulate it to somebody else such that they understand the target of our conversation is either not a reasoning conscious person, or we need to build our skills. I think it's a bit of both in all these different cases. We need to build our skills to be able to articulate our positions of research. And we also have to recognize some people aren't in the learning business you know, they're all set. They think they know, and that's good enough. How you guys feeling 
questions? Richard Gage? What's the question there, Chris? Uh, do you have time for a few more questions? How are you feeling? Sure. Well, um, Daniel McCarthy asks, not to get too far out, but how can you explain what Judy Wood calls the dustification of the towers? Well, there's a lot of dust uh, associated with the towers. We saw uh, in all the videos, you see 90,000 tons of concrete in each tower pulverized to a fine dust. The question is, what does that? Uh, and and uh, high energy explosives can do that. Uh, that's how they blow stuff up. Uh, we don't know exactly how they did it. Um, uh, there's no evidence that uh, directed energy weapons can pulverize concrete powder any more than there's evidence that it can pulverize to a fine dust uh, 100,000 tons of steel. Um, uh, in fact, the steel is not pulverized to dust. It, much of it is softened uh, in these 4,000 degree furnaces created by uh, what we have evidence for, which is thermite, nanothermite. And uh, the rest of it, uh, which isn't softened, is blown uh, in a 600 foot uh, radius around each of the towers outside the footprint. So Judy Wood says that, well, there's no steel down at the bottom. Well, she's right. It's, it's, but there's 200,000 tons of steel all around and outside the boundary of World Trade Center uh, towers. So it's not dustified. It's there in its, its full uh, quantities. Uh, it's just not where you'd expect it to be in a gravitational collapse, which is what we're told by the official story. Yeah, it had gone uh, so, through uh, the Merrill Lynch building, Deutsche Bank building, uh, Millennium Hotel across the street. I mean, there was there's pieces of metal all over downtown. I mean, within not two block radius, but it, the 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 materials all crossed the street and projected themselves through buildings, like sometimes through the other side. I think because uh, there's the um, the winter garden at the Merrill Lynch building and a girder had come over the building and down through the roof of that. So you're talking almost two blocks away. Yeah. More than 600 feet. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, these four ton structural steel sections are blown laterally at 80 miles an hour clocked by physicists laterally freely flying structural steel sections. How does that happen? And this is enough energy to fire a 200-pound cannonball three miles, as calculated by physicists. And they're trailing thick white smoke clouds, the ends of these steel beams. Well, steel beams are not flammable. So they're not, they're not you don't catch them on fire. There's, it's not like wood. It's not burning unless something was set there on it to cause it uh, to do just that. And the... Uh, uh, What's missing in, in, in Judy Wood's uh, directed energy weapons theory is the analysis of the dust, which is very, very detailed and which, as we've discussed, reveals previously molten iron, not steel, microspheres, uh, which is the evidence of thermite. What is not there is the evidence of steel dust. There's no steel dust in the dust. So if the steel was dustified, there would be steel dust documented in the dust by these independent agencies.
Got a good, a good question here. Sorry, go ahead, Richard. I was just going to say, it's a good question, Daniel, and it's an excellent answer, Richard, because I've studied Judy Wood's work. I try to uh, remain agnostic on all these things and remain objective. And there are things about Judy Wood that I, I liked that she was looking at. Like there's a lot of energy that was released during that. So she, she had an angle on that. I think it's a, a recipe, a multitude of different techniques and effects, right? There's, there's the thermite nanospheres and there's like the, the molten upstairs, upstairs, but then there's uh, big, huge beams at the bottom cut at an angle, just like when they have cutting charges on pieces of metal. So you can put a cutting charge and it'll just cut the metal right there. So there are pictures with the firefighters in the rubble with these perfectly cut and melted pieces. And then if you go to the hangar and look at some of the, uh, the, the stuff they didn't ship to China, the evidence, there's, uh, there's girders, huge girders. And, and supports that are like tied like pretzels because they were turned to superheated molten almost because they didn't lose their structure, but they definitely bent very freely and then cooled like that. So there's, there's a multitude of different characteristics. And I don't think any one of the theories really like, cause if you look at uh, the nuclear demolition theories, Kozilev and those guys, there are aspects of all these different things. So I think it's more of a, a layered photoshop effect to get the final thing that we see and that's why it's so hard to figure out because it's not just one thing they did a couple different things and um they did them very like that show went off without a hitch that day well there were a few hitches actually fortunately for us in the 9-11 truth movement um but uh world trade center sevens that (laughs) for sure yeah, there's their biggest hitch right there. The smoking gun of 9-11. Silverstein got greedy, that's all. Uh, Judy Wood, one of the... <laughs> he, he may have... One of the things that uh, bothers me the most uh, uh, about uh, Judy Wood is that while providing literally no evidence for her theory, uh, she denies the most scientific, basic forensic evidence that we have for thermite on page 126 of her book, it's it, she just denies it, just flat out denies it. There's no thermite, there's no nanothermite. She denies the evidence for explosions, of which there's a couple of hundred uh, witnesses of explosions all over the place, including the videos, which are very well documented. And she denies the evidence for this being a hot event. She says it's a cold event because the Hutchinson effect is apparently a cold uh, uh, technology or science or experiment, uh, but uh, the the evidence of extreme heat is everywhere and very well documented by numerous agencies, uh, even of the federal government. Uh, so, uh, somebody who who denies the most basic forensic evidence and provides no evidence for her own theory leads me to be suspect. <laughs> it's very well stated, <laughs> um, Rich. If you have a a, a bit more time for a few more questions. Um, this is a good one. Another one by Igor Krezo. Um, Not getting any of that. Are you? Hey, yeah, it's all right. Uh, Chris, your, your audio got garbled for a second. You got a network hiccup.
Sounds like he's trying real hard, though. He is. Those Texans try real hard when their internet goes out. That's how it works. I've got 10 minutes uh, also, Richard, if you can. Uh... Let me see where Chris is coming back from. <laughs> he went to the moon. Uh, well, sound like he stopped trying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So, uh, I'm going to, I'll take the helm and, and, uh, wrap it up. Cause you've got 10 minutes left on your schedule. Um, right. so September 11th is the press conference at the national press club. Am I correct? Yes. Nine 30 and press is welcome at the press club. Yes. <laughs> That's why we're doing it. <laughs> Well, so many things are censored these days. I didn't know if press was still welcome at the press club or if they had special (laughs) rules. Reverse censorship. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Um, Also, we have a a live stream of the event in UC Berkeley, uh, which is uh, September 5th at uh, 3 o'clock in the afternoon Pacific time, UC We'll be putting that information out in all of our uh, bulletins. Uh, so if you're not signed up, everybody, to our bulletins, they go out once a week or so from ae911truth.org. Just go and put your name and your email address in. It takes like 30 seconds. And if you support ae911truth.org, they fund cool things like the doctor or the professor Leon Halsey, Leroy Halsey study at the University of Alaska. Am I correct? You were behind funding that project to actually get to answers instead of just talking about it. You guys funded something to get to answers. Yeah. Where did we get money like that? $300,000. Well, more than uh, three or 400 people uh, donated to make that happen. That was, that was very impressive. Because a lot of people, you know, it actually made me think, what could we be funding in the future? Because that's a good study. World Trade Center 7 is a limited circumstance. You're not dealing with the towers. You're dealing with this thing that wasn't hit by a plane. And it's a government file cabinet that had SEC, Enron, IRS, CIA, all sorts of stuff in that building. And so there's a, there, it's, it's a good aspect to just, you know. Uh, you pound in your flag, you say, I'm standing here, I'm talking about this, and you talk about it as the how, and you compare it to the official story. It's, I'm sure there's been a lot of opportunities to go off and follow red herrings and, and talk about the who or the why, but I want to congratulate you for just staying where you are, doing what you do, covering it, adding layers, getting more people to support it, improving your media. Your media production has improved so much over the years. And now going out to fund the University of Alaska study with Professor Leroy Halsey, that's a serious piece of work that took the actual data from the blueprints and rebuilt it. That's how you get answers. That's not what NIST did. So actually, I think you should, you should get a refund from the government for doing the job that they actually use taxpayer dollars not to do. Yeah, they spent um, about $5 million uh, doing the Building 7 study. Uh, we spent $300,000 and it's open architecture. They won't release the input data for their computer models. They cited it might jeopardize public safety if we were to release right. it. Wait a minute. Doesn't it jeopardize public safety to withhold this information from the architects and engineers who were responsible with ensuring the public safety? We need that information. Chris, are you back now? You want to? You want uh, to? 
Richard has because yeah. he's got schedule to keep. So I wanted to give you the opportunity now that your internet has cleared up to uh, to bring the show full circle so that we can uh, go to the Discord and do Q and A over there. Excellent. Well, um, Richard Gage, we really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today, and I hope it's been added value to everyone on both sides of the Zoom channel. Yeah, absolutely. Really enlightening. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to engage with Richard Grove and James Corbett and you, Chris. It's pretty awesome. Well, on behalf of the students, I know there's a lot of autonomy students and graduates here on the call. Uh, they get like the sneak peek into the background. This is live production and they get to hear and participate. And uh, that's very exciting for them. And I'm you know, just speaking for them to say thank you for, for making time in your schedule and providing us with uh, the, this copious amount of uh, facts for consideration on this topic. Yeah, I appreciate it, Richard. So um, September 5th, we'll expect good news, hopefully. Yep, you'll get some great news uh, from UC Berkeley, Professor Leroy Halsey, uh, live streamed. Uh, fire did not bring down this building. In fact, he shows what could have brought down the building. By God, if you take out all 80 columns on at least eight floors, at uh, split-second timing, the building comes down exactly like the video, and he's going to show that uh, with his computer model. And in the meantime, we can uh, maybe pursue. Maybe he could get that uh, that elevator report. Um, fast forward it a little bit. That would certainly help. I'll forward his info to uh, Richard and you and James. Excellent. Well, um, I think that's uh, pretty much concludes our roundtable discussion. Yeah, appreciate it, Richard Gates. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chris, and thanks, Richard Grove. Really appreciate the opportunity. Hey, you earn it. You you're doing all that hard work out there. It's the least we could do to help shine a light on it. <laughs> Great news. All right, and that's where we'll cut the end of the episode, and uh, now we'll leave you on your way, Richard. Thank you. All right, thanks, guys. You be well. And for everyone else, I'm going to uh, switch over to Discord so we can continue. We can use the uh, the live uh, class chat audio channel for that. Just give me a few seconds and I'll click over there.